welcome to Changing Academic Life. I'm Geraldine Fitzpatrick, and this is a podcast series where academics and others share their stories, provide ideas, and provoke discussions about what we can do individually and collectively to change academic life for the better. I have the great pleasure of speaking here with Lona Malmborg. She's an associate professor at the IT University of Copenhagen and she heads up the Interaction Design Research Group there. A big part of what we talk about here is what's happening in Denmark and at ITU around performance measures. Um, And she reflects on the impacts of what gets counted and how counts get benchmarked and what this means for things like publication strategies and stress levels for people. And she shares some of her own strategies for trying to turn a focus from on the individual to a cooperative activity so that the pressure is shared. One thing that she has asked me to uh, correct, though, is that she talks in the podcast about uh, having a target of one million kroner, and this should be 870,000-800,000 Danish kroner. As usual, you can find summary notes of the podcast and related links at www.changingacademiclife.com. Thank you, Lona, for joining me today and chatting. Um, you come from a background where you did a literature degree as your undergraduate and then you did literature and computer science for your master's. Not exactly. Okay. I actually did the social science, uh, not a bachelor, because it was a two, mm-hmm. at Roskilde University, it was a two-year degree, the basis degree. Um, and then a three-year on top of that, where you usually would study, study two subjects uh, in parallel. But because there was a waiting list for uh, computer science, uh, I finished my degree in Danish literature and language first, and then I started computer science afterwards. So computer science is what you really wanted to do? No, not really. I, I, <laughs> actually, to be honest, I started out studying uh, literature and language and uh, social science. But then they were closing down the social science studies, and I studied these in parallel. So then I had to find out, okay, what do I then want to study? And then I think at that point, uh, there was a lot of interesting stuff happening in computer science. So um, I uh, I decided to, to start computer science also because I could see that there were greater business opportunities, job mm-hmm. opportunities in in that area. Um, so that was part of my reasoning. And it was an interesting mix of skills then. Yeah. So what, what, what did you do then going forward for your PhD? Um, during, towards the end of my studies, uh, uh, in order to, ha- to earn a little money for living, I was uh, working as an editor at a publishing house. <clears throat> and um, one of the authors there... Uh, or the, I was actually given a really, really interesting project. Uh, it was uh, a huge uh, uh, project they had at this publishing house, uh, making three scientists do a, a history of technology book, uh, which I was the editor of. Uh, and uh, I, I worked really good with these three authors uh, coming from different directions, and one of them was... Uh, philosopher, science person, and uh, a mathematician uh, from the Copenhagen Business School. 
um, and uh, towards uh, the end of my studies and the end of my position at the publishing house, he asked, wouldn't you like to become a PhD student uh, at uh, the Copenhagen Business School? Uh, and I was like, ah, I don't know, because I think now I've been at university for so long and maybe I should go out and, and get a position in industry. And I looked out at that point and I thought it was, I mean, it wasn't really challenging. And the jobs, I, I was actually offered a position with the Danish Railways. They had, the, the, they had a new uh, uh, methodology section that should, uh, it was a new position uh, setting up methodologies for IT systems, developing IT systems in the Danish Railways. Uh, but then I visited the company, I visited what should become my future colleagues, and I was like, no, I don't think I'll be challenged in, in this mm. position. Mm -hmm. So then I said, okay, uh, the business school, it's something completely different from uh, Roskilde University where I studied. So I think that I, I defended the, the decision towards myself saying that this is really a shift and, and I will give this a chance. And I got a three months uh, a grant to write a PhD application. So um, I, I wrote this application and I got the PhD position <laughs> based on this application. So uh, yeah, that's, I mean, sometimes life is like that. You end yeah. up, uh, and I was at the, the it was uh, the Department of Applied Computer Science um, at the business school. Mm. And what was the topic of your PhD? It was about, um, limitations of formalization. Okay. Uh, so it was about, I mean, when you use all these tools, uh, something called case tools, computer-aided software engineering, when you use these tools, you formalize the real world to be modeled uh, in these tools. So uh, my dissertation was about how what happens uh, when we formalize the world and putting them into these formal structures of um, these tools that we are using to modeling the world uh, for building IT systems. Which is an ongoing tension, isn't yes. it? Yes, yes. The, the tension between the formalizations and the complex yeah. chaotic realities yeah. of everyday yeah, life. Yeah, because, I mean, somehow we have to formalize it in order to, to do the yeah. IT systems, but yeah. the other, on the other hand, I mean, we, we cut away so many uh, important aspects of life when mm. doing that, so mm. it was about these tensions. Mm. Mm. So what drives you now in your research? You're, you're at IT University and in mm. the interaction design area mm. of your mm. um, university. Mm. What, what are the passions and interests that drive your research now? I think if I look, uh, I mean this, I finished my PhD in 95 mm. and if I look at the changes on how I, what drives me as an academic, I think uh, at that time I worked with these formal methods and modeling tools and so on. And then later on, uh, actually I was maybe uh, like provoked by this. I went into phenomenology and tried to look at what is the importance of, of using our body in interaction with the world. So I wor worked with a philosopher on, on creating a, a theoretical model of, of um, 
how when we do, I, I actually developed a virtual reality system uh, where you could um, interact, uh, a very simple one because it was so expensive at that point, mm. uh, but where you could interact uh, with representations using your body, interacting with representations. And, and you could see that somehow it was a very theoretical exploration and, and I kept on having this interest for some years and then more and more, I mean, as I grow older, I can see that my interest is, I mean, I want to do things that make a difference for people. Even though it's very few people, I think it's so important that mm -hmm. I can see that what I do uh, change the life for somebody. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, I've been working a lot with seniors for many years, and I think it is a really, really important area, and we can see how... Uh, it becomes more and more difficult to to be a senior in a society where you have less resources for uh, supporting uh, senior citizens. Uh, so I think right now what I'm doing now, it feels so good <laughs> because mm -hmm. I can I like having a um, an agenda that also have sort of a, a political part and a social part. So I like working in this field of of um, yeah, the the political tensions uh, and uh, the research work in mm. around technology. I mean, mm. if these can be combined in what I do, I like it very much. Um, has it been how how has it been in creating research projects or niches to bring those interests together? I mean, somehow I think it's actually easier easier than do. Uh, doing uh, basic research or ground, ground research because I think there are more, more, more and more resources that are put into um, research, I mean like funding bodies, having a, an agenda that's defined by politicians. So, I mean, you have energy uh, research mm -hmm. that's defined by uh, our lack of energy resources, you have mm -hmm. uh, welfare technology that's defined by lack of resources in the welfare area. So, I mean, uh, in some way, it's actually easier getting uh, resources for uh, your research. Mm. Um, but some, so the, the societal challenges mm. drive the focus for the research mm. funding bodies. Mm. But sometimes within those funding bodies, it's, is it sometimes not easier just to be bring a more straightforward sort of technical perspective or mm. a political perspective? Mm. You know, mm. has it been hard yeah. you know, arguing in proposals that you bring all of these perspectives together, or do you end up mm. foregrounding or backgrounding? It's it's another tension within this system yeah. because I mean, there's um, there's very very different value systems. Um, defining what is the right research to do in this area. So, I mean, the areas are well-funded, but the approach, the methodologies, yeah, yeah. and also the value systems, I think there's a lot of work to do. Like the, the, the project we are doing in AAL, uh, Ambient Assisted Living, I mean, it's based on a belief that uh, old people are weak uh, and they need uh, support. Uh, they need all kinds of technical to support to... Um, yeah, I mean, to handle their life. Uh, whereas in the research we do, we try to uh, to look at uh, older people as resourceful people and seeing 
not only all these uh, practical assistance like surveying uh, uh, your life in your home and having all kind of alarm systems, uh, fall detectors and all this, but also looking at other qualities of life like um, having the ability to uh, to have social interaction with yeah. other people, yeah. having um, the ability to being living an, an active life, yeah. a mobile active life outside your home, not being tied to your home, and and I think this this agenda. I mean, it's a fight to get this agenda on board, even if you have funding that that goes into welfare. There's still in the specific calls, there's, uh, uh, I mean, some expectations about what kind of research you do, how you do research uh, that's uh, not so dominating in these areas. So there, I mean, there, there's a fight yeah. to, to do uh, research the way I want to do research. But you've still been able to get funding to do these projects. Uh, not as much funding as I mean our university wants us to do, yes. and not I mean not it's not the big funding. I mean in in the more technical areas you get I mean you uh, I mean you need machine machinery basically we need <laughs> manpower we need the people who can do concepts to think out solutions and so on. Mm -hmm. But uh, and we don't basically need any uh, machinery for yeah. what we're doing. So it's it's. It's small money compared to uh, people who do uh, big uh, atom splitters or whatever they're called mm. <laughs> and using a lot of, uh, mm. requiring a lot of funding to these machines. Mm. Yeah. So, I mean, we, we are expected to spend a certain amount of money and it's simply difficult for us to spend that much money in the way we do research. Uh, so the different styles of research entail different funding expectations yeah, yeah. or funding needs? I mean, if I should talk a little about uh, what's going on in Denmark now, uh, because, um, I mean, we're benchmarking all research. So we have some average measures for how much funding each full-time researcher in Denmark has to draw in uh, every year. And this is set by the government? Mm, no, government. no. I mean, this is this is uh, this is just by measuring how much funding is actually spent in Denmark. How much? Uh, how many? What's the value of of all the funding spent in Denmark? Mm -hmm. And then you divide it by all the full time researchers we have in Denmark, and then you see, okay. Um, until recently, we had a measure at the University that everybody all. All the senior faculty, they have to spend one million Danish kroner per year in external funding because that's the average in Denmark. So that means you have to earn or you know, competitively get, be awarded one million Danish kroner. Yeah, we have to be awarded, but technically yeah. we talk about spending because yeah. you can get the money and if you don't spend it, they, they don't count. So if I only spend 900,000 kroner out of the one, the one million, I only, I mean, count 900,000 okay. kroner. Okay. Anyway, so... Um, I have to spend this because this is the average, but it's so difficult uh, if you are at a university where you don't spend uh, money on really, really expensive technical equipment. Uh, but you're still judged by the same benchmark because it's a straight 
uh, arithmetic um, exactly. division of people exactly. and overall yeah. fund. Yeah, and I mean, where does this come from? And it has, it has completely changed the culture of how we think and also how we compete, even internally with yeah. each other, because it means that people, they, I mean, they don't want to share with their colleagues the same way, because, I mean, if you're going for a specific uh, call, then, I mean, of course, it's if your colleagues is going for the same call. Uh, I mean, it just creates so many strange mechanisms in terms of, of uh, how the collective of researchers are working. Mm. So how long has this been in place? Um, yeah, actually, I've been thinking about this, and how did, did this start? I think this starts, started in the... In the mid '90s in Denmark, uh, where the finan- uh, the Ministry of Finance, they basically it was about, I mean, making sure that all public employees they uh, were uh, efficient. I mean, there was a lot of claims that people are not efficient enough in the way they do their work. Mm. So uh, a lot of uh, measurement uh, methods for the public sector was introduced um, basically because it was about not trusting that people are doing the best they yeah. can do. So we have to measure how much they produce. So so these were introduced at schools, public schools, universities, uh, uh, all public administration, they introduced these uh, measurement methods. Um, and at the same time, you also had this, like, <laughs> the, the Soviet plan uh, economy, um, uh, where you plan ahead and you make this, uh, now we have uh, a plan for the next 10 years and everybody has to produce so and so much for the next 10 years. So I think these two things together has created this insane system of measuring everything you do, counting everything you do, mm. Uh, so what's, what, what makes an efficient academic? An efficient academic... Uh, According to this definition, yeah, as we look I at mean, the rubbish truck or the I, big truck outside creating noise. Yeah. I think it's uh, the way this is implemented uh, at different universities is very different. But there has, there has been... I mean, I think first we started counting teaching that everybody, I mean, we, we, um, we count how much student production we do. So uh, we call it STO in Denmark, which means a student, a yearly work of the student. So we count that. So not, not graduates, but... Yeah, I mean, every, we count one year production. So, mm-hmm. uh, and then we get some bonus if, if, we, if our students graduate in time. And I mean, they're all kind of bonuses. So this creates the payment for the university. But, I mean, you can actually imagine what happens because if, if we know that, okay, our income will increase if we make students go faster through the system, it means that maybe we start setting lower uh, requirements uh, for quality at exam. So, okay, we better pass these students because it, it will be expensive if we do not. Yeah. I mean, of course... We would say that we don't do that because we are a proud uh, group of people and uh, uh, we will come into trouble. But I mean, I think it happens. Um, And I mean, it's sort of built into this uh, system. And it also, I mean, now, so it started out uh, counting uh, the the student work, but now we also, we, 
we have introduced a system at ITU where we also, I mean, it came already before we had this system, but I mean, uh, all our publication channels, and it's like more than 40,000 publication channels has been grouped into uh, different groups. Um, and then it has been decided uh, which publication channels are on level one or level two. And then you get you get credits for or points for uh, if you uh, publish in this channel or this channel. So there are two different uh, kind of channels. Uh, and of course, as we all know, there's also the question of, I mean, being so and so many authors, but uh, so you've found a way to actually count publications. So you count the number of publications at a particular level and a publication, if I understand the number yeah. of authors, a publication might earn X points and yes. those X points get distributed between all the authors of that publication. Yeah. yeah. And um, so it's, it was the first step in the direction towards uh, counting uh, our research. Mm. Because, I mean, otherwise, I mean, how do you count if somebody are efficient in research? So that was one measurement. Uh, and we were promised when this was introduced that, no, no, this will not affect our funding. But I think eventually it, it will affect our funding. And then, I mean, specifically at the IT University, um, we also, I mean, we wanted to sort of be able to measure all kind of, of uh, activities. So teaching, how much do people teach, how much do people publish, how much external funding is people uh, it, it attract every year. Who was it who decided what publications went into what categories or levels and could you influence that? And who, yeah, yeah it just actually seems... Uh, yes. So it was a very long process uh, that was put up, put up by our Ministry of um, Science and Innovation. Uh, and I think it went on for, for two years in order to do this work. So all universities were invited to appoint uh, people for uh, 65 different uh, scientific areas. Um, so, I mean, so it covers all research in Denmark. So, um, uh, these 65 groups were made, and then they started uh, looking through a, a, a brutal list of, mm. uh, I think, more than 40,000 publication channels to claim where they think, which channels think they think should belong to their area. And then when all these publication channels were divided, they started the work of deciding whether they should be on, on level one or level two. And I think uh, in all these groups, there were about uh, between four to six members from different universities. I was, um, I was uh, a member of one of these groups. Um, actually, I was heading this group at some point. Uh, and it was, I mean, it was a messy process. And, and I mean, I don't know how you should do this or if you should do it, but at least to some degree, I think it's a little arbitrary um, how mm. this is done. And it also it's dynamic. But actually, I, I should say that you can now, you can actually, if a new journal uh, comes up, you can, you, you, can, yeah, you, can, you can suggest 
uh, that it should belong to this group and it should be on level one or two. You could also go in and say, now this journal is so popular, so maybe we should change the level. But actually, this system means that it's very, very hard to, uh, to establish a new journal because a new journal will always have, uh, have the lowest level yeah. uh, as a start and maybe for some years. So who would ever publish, consider publishing in, the, in this yeah. new journal just to support your good colleagues who establish a new journal? Or just to talk to a very niche community who you really want to talk to. Yeah. But it's not going to earn you yeah. enough brownie points. So it's actually, I mean, it's a very conservative system uh, because it's hard to uh, to invent new publication channels. Mm. It was actually also very hard to um, to uh, argue that uh, our venues for publishing the conferences mm. was count, counting on the science design on the high level. Yeah. But I mean, if we look at, for example, the the CHI conference or the PTC conference and so on, they have, uh, I mean, a, a lower uh, publication rate or a higher rejection rate than many journals have. So, I mean, of course, we mm. had to get them mm. in, and we got them in. Uh, but so, yeah, it, it's it's how that's counted. But of course, it it. It creates all kind of strange uh, publication strategies where people, rather than picking what is exactly yes. uh, the right journal yeah. in terms of the topic, you pick uh, the the publication venue that gives you uh, the the highest credit. Yeah. Um, yeah, which then becomes self-reinforcing as yes. well because it it reinforces that this is a top venue and yes. the venue that actually probably would have been better for your work yeah. Yeah. continues to be reinforced as um, yeah. a venue that not many people publish in. Yeah, yeah, and then uh, so so that's the national system, and then um, I mean people have have. Uh, very different uh, ways of handling this, and universities have very different ways of handling it. For example, at our university, it's uh, what we call an output model when we count this. So, I mean, you only get points from, we call it, we harvest uh, in this, the, the publication mm -hmm. system. So, uh, we harvest twice a year, and then we see how much uh, points people have earned from publications. So, I mean, if you have got three papers rejected and have worked really, really hard on these papers, you don't get any it's credit. Invisible. Yeah. It's invisible. And the same, the same thing with, uh, with the funding. I mean, we, we all know that a lot of the EU programs, they have uh, a very low acceptance rate. Uh, most have less than 10%. Yep. Many have like 2% exactly. acceptance rate. Yep. So, you, I mean, it doesn't take a lot of calculation to, yeah. to find out uh, how much waste of work yep. uh, that we are not paid for. Uh, it's not recognized. No. As, and not legitimized. No. There's something that says it's not no. legitimate work. Yeah. And it's not so. recognizing those realities of you know, the conferences that you mentioned that have acceptance mm. rates mm. in the twenty mid-20s yeah. generally. So yeah. you know, that's 75%, let's just say, of papers that don't get accepted or yeah. you know, exactly. the 98% of proposals. Yeah. And a lot of that stuff is outside of your control. You know, mm. Even if you've got a good paper, yeah. it yeah. just might not make it yeah. into the yeah. 25 room. Yeah. So mm. I, I think this is, this is very unhealthy in terms of uh, allowing yourself to fail. So if you 
want to risk something by picking up a new mm. thing that's really you're trying out an idea or something. It's so risky to do yeah. that. So it's actually supporting a research strategy where you never fail. <laughs> And I mean, good research requires a lot of failing. Yeah. So I think, I hope at some point uh, we will see the consequences of uh, of this as almost boring research because nobody nobody dares to try out yeah. new things because, I mean, why do that uh, if it's not recognized yeah. anywhere? What happens if you don't get your 100 points? I mean, How does that play a lot of people have asked this question directly to our vice chancellor or to our head of, former head of department. Uh, so uh, you pointed yeah. to lots of different ways that these various measuring activities mm. are skewing people's behaviors, whether it's sort of what research topics they choose mm. or where they choose to publish. Mm. But you also, there's that influence that it's having on what work we're actually doing. Mm. But you also talked about stress. So mm. can you say more about that impact that it's having on the people that you're seeing yeah. you're responsible for? As uh, in, 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 in my section called people and computational things, um, I decided to find a way to uh, to make this less stressful. And I mean, how can you do that? Uh, how can you do that? How can you do that? Now, what I decided is to say that we do this as a collective effort. I don't want to count the individual production. I want to count us as, uh, as a section, as a group of people. Do you have the freedom to do that? Because it sounds like the way the system's set up, it's very individual focused. It is set up individual. So I, I mean, I don't, I cannot get rid of. I mean, people are still listed as individuals, but I can give people the feeling of okay, we're helping each other, each other out. So I mean, what I mean, we're doing mainly. I mean, in teaching, I think we've always collaborated. So that's and that's not the big stress. People can do their teaching. It's okay. But in, in publication and funding, especially, it's a big stress. So um, uh, what I decided to do is to, um, once a year, we do a series of workshops where we um, uh, everybody, even uh, junior faculty, come up with, uh, with ideas for research projects. And everybody has to come up with ideas. Small and big ideas. Uh, and then we try to group these ideas and make sure that everybody Everybody has something they are engaged in. And then um, we, I mean, we are like uh, 14 faculty. Uh, so we should end up with four to six projects. Mm -hmm. And then we meet up uh, with a consultant company, which I've been allowed to hire in for a small amount of money. Uh, and they help us match these uh, research projects ideas towards the, the EU calls. Mm -hmm. So they help us find uh, the most appropriate EU calls for these ideas we have. And then they also help us, uh, we have um, something called EU Upstart Money in Denmark, where you can apply for create money for creating a project. So they help us doing these small applications. And if we get in the money for that, then we use this money to pay them to help us uh, write the application. So, so we'll have a process with them on, on board, uh, refining these mm -hmm. applications together. 
and also presenting the applications towards each other and criticizing each other's applications. And everybody is, is coming along, even junior faculty. So they, it's also a learning process for them to, to know, because if you've never tried to make an EU application, it's like a big mystery. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. what's going on in this machinery? And suddenly, I mean, I have two uh, assistant professors who's, who they are, these two people working together. And they said to me, the other day, oh, now we understand how it looks inside the machine of this EU thing after submitting an application. Mm. Uh, so I think it's, it's, a, it's a very good process yeah. and it actually helps us uh, writing these applications and we even, um, I mean, sometimes we go away and we, uh, so we discuss it when we are away. Um, this like a, 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 a section retreat. retreat. Yes, yeah. Um, and actually the retreat idea was invented um, uh, to, to, as a paper writing retreat mm -hmm. around um, a CHI uh, deadline. So we, uh, we um, had a little, a little amount of money, so we went to some, a very simple place, but uh, for three days on a little small, or a small island in, in Denmark, or actually it's a Swedish island between Denmark and Sweden, very remote, <laughs> very simple. Um, and then we had a very structured session of uh, yeah, two, two, three days, where we, we um, were together two and two writing papers. Mm -hmm. So we were having of we time boxed this writing. So we write, criticize, uh, present to uh, the firm, uh, write again. And so time boxing this writing thing. So uh, coming with an idea to this writing workshop and then leaving with the draft paper when you nice. go home. Yeah. yeah. There's so much I like about what you've done in response to those um, performance measures. You know, the fact that yeah. You've not let anyone be stranded. You've, you know, everyone's mm. there supporting one another. That you've mm. turned something that could be really competitive, and from what you've said, is in other contexts, mm. into something that's mm. collaborative, mm. and people get brought along to learn, mm. as you said. Yeah, it it is. I think actually, people are stressed, but they are not that stressed, and I think they always they they feel that we can lean towards each other, and we will take shared responsibility to, towards this and will support each other. But that's a culture um, that you've created. Yeah, I mean, this idea of, of have a permanent contact with this company, it's something I created. Um, and I hope we can continue this. I mean, uh, we've been working with them now. Actually, Give and Take was the first project yeah. uh, I did with them. And, and then, I, I mean, it, it, it was just a relief to have some professional yeah. people who could help out with yeah. also a little also part of the content yeah. uh, of these projects so I think it, it really has been a relief uh, to uh, to see that okay I can actually get some good support yeah. and I'm not alone <laughs> in this game yeah. so those external companies who help write proposals I always have mixed feelings about them because yeah. I think it's brilliant to have that support mm. but I think it's crazy that we've created a system more mm. generally that mm. we need to have these new businesses arise mm. to mm. help us do our core mm. business which is writing yeah. research proposals yeah but yeah, I understand. But I mean, actually, they, they take some of the stress out of it from us yeah. because they can do some of the uh, some of the 
the boring parts of yeah. writing an application. Some, yeah. I mean, there's some stuff that needs to go into an mm. application, so they can yeah. they can write that. I mean, there needs to be justification of of a market strategy or whatever, which is, I mean, I don't know anything about this, but they can help me out on that. They also know that, okay, you need to have a little section on on this, and it could look like this. So they they help you get started. Yes. Uh, so they can do some of the, I mean the boring part and also I mean how do you make nice illustrations of how your efforts are distributed among partners I mean all this work that you can spend a lot of time on that that's not really research but actually yeah. so there's an argument you could make that they free you up to focus on exactly the research, exactly it? yeah so, so I just I've just been visiting ITU and mm-hmm. uh, Someone I met yesterday said, oh, I've got to run, I'm on my way to the stress workshop. Yeah. What, what's that about? It's actually because oh, I think that part of... We, we had a, um, a survey, an employee survey recently, uh, or actually it's, I think it's almost a year ago now, uh, that uh, there was an outcome of this which was actually across all our sections. We could see that there's so many people feeling stressed uh, and we have to take this serious. So, uh, remove the performance criteria. <laughs> <laughs> and and it was actually it came up after after the introduction of the performance model. So I'm pretty sure that that does, it's part of it. But but anyway, um, I said that the I mean we as as uh, the group of section heads, part of the management, we have to do something about this. Uh, and then, okay, what could we do? We could hire in a consultant to to actually run um, run a workshop on how to to deal with some of these things. Uh, and we invited <laughs> first. I mean, it was management who suggested a person they've heard about, and this person he he came and presented his idea, and it was mainly about. Uh, how people should learn to to live with uh, this high stress level, and how can you how can you invent uh, mindfulness in your office when you're sitting and having a five minute break? Can you do some mindfulness exercise that help you cope with the stress? Uh, so it was called stress resilience, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, but then we said no, no, no. I mean, this is actually uh, intelligent people. Uh, it's it's really not fair to uh, try to uh, uh, imagine that, that this is what it is about. Uh, so we wanted to have somebody who could actually work more structural with what, what, how can we actually work in another way, I mean, probably new ways of collaborating and so on in order to, um, to, to, to take away some of the structures that create mm. this stress. Right. Um, and I think we were told that, that the, the performance model wouldn't go away, but I think, I mean, if more people could do like this, having this collective... Yeah. <laughs> okay, so, I mean, because there's unequivocal research evidence that says mindfulness-based yeah. techniques can reduce stress. Yeah. But the point, the more important point here is, is more practical strategies so the stress is lower in the yeah. first place. So what can you change to lower the, lower the causes of stress? Yeah. So setting up your collaborative... More of a collaborative model. What yeah. other, what changes have people come up with then? Uh, I I don't know yet because mm-hmm. I mean the first workshop was a disaster. It, it was mainly about this mind. I mean doing mindfulness mm-hmm. and and so on. And 
and uh, how to uh, deal with uh, high stress in your private life. And, and I think it was really very uh, almost counterproductive. Mm. Uh, so we have explicitly asked for having a, another kind of of uh, workshop uh, themes now yeah. to have another approach yeah. into this. So I hope that it it will turn out to um, actually be productive in 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 uh, people finding ways to uh, change change things yeah. in order to create yeah. this less stress. I mean, that's yeah. and that's part of I think um, well part of the motivation for doing these podcasts is. What are the things that are within our control yeah, that yeah. we can do? So you may not be able to get yeah. rid of the performance measures, which would be great if you could. But yeah. if you can't, what are the different ways that yeah. you are able to respond to them practically? Yeah, yeah. yeah I mean, as as a head of section, having some management yeah. tools. I mean, I I was able to create this. Yeah, the the writing retreat that mm-hmm. made the. I mean, shared the production of, of uh, text. And I mean, actually, it, it also uh, created some new uh, relationships between people. So it has some other very good effects yeah. that sometimes you need to to put on these structures from outside in order to, to create, I mean, to to uh, change the way people are working together. So yes. just create another setting for, for, for working. And then, I mean, new interesting things come out of this. Yeah. Uh, and I think the the funding it was mainly because I mean it's so difficult for one person to to get grip of how do how do I get in one million kroner per year and how do I what approach would one this? million kroner be say in euros or US dollars? It would be one hundred and thirty thousand euros mm-hmm. per year. So uh, similar sort of number in US dollars. Yeah, yeah, a little more probably. Yeah. Uh, but yeah. yeah, so it's. It's quite some. If everybody yeah. and and actually, I mean, and since we're using this funding mainly for for employing people, I couldn't see how many how how we could have enough offices for, for all these people we should hire in uh, for all this money. So I mean, somehow it's it's just a calculation that doesn't work. But um, yeah. yeah, and in a climate where. Um, Funding, access to funding is reducing. Funding mm-hmm. uh, pots are getting yeah, lower. Yeah, we just heard today that the funding in our national funding body, the Innovation yeah. Fund Denmark, it's cut by 30%. Yeah. So, I mean, but you still have to get your... I still have to get the, my, the number of uh, funding. Mm. I often, so. often joke about we should have a cake stall on the street at lunchtime to start yeah. uh, collecting. Yeah. yeah, and then, I mean, of course, I also have my, my personal strategies. Yeah. To, um, to cope with this. So I was just going to ask yeah. you about that. What? How do you deal with it personally? Because you're part of yeah. this, and and yeah, yeah I think uh, I've always, uh, or for many many years, dealt with this by having something that's um, very uh, tangible mm-hmm. as an output uh, that it satisfies me in another way. So I think I've spent an enormous amount of time cooking, uh, actually every day, uh, even when my children were young. And I mean, you have a busy life. I think the the quality of of cooking, both the the cooking process and the spending time together eating the food. So both in the morning. I mean, when my children lived at home, I think I I baked bread almost every morning. That's impressive. <laughs> but it was like. 
It was just a very, very good start of the day. Yeah. I made really, really good uh, lunch uh, packages for my children because, I mean, I think uh, brains work good <laughs> on, uh, on uh, good food. Uh, and we always spend time uh, in the morning sitting and having uh, breakfast together. Um, always. Mm. Uh, and I think that's... So, so I mean, eating together, food, cooking together, Setting uh, the day off on a good yeah, night. and and this I mean this very tangible um, output of yeah. doing an effort yeah. that you can see the immediate result of. Yeah. I think that's I mean that has been my way of coping with academic stress. So mm. having this nice tangible output mm. every day. Uh, so do you still do that because the kids are grown up and yeah, the kids are grown there. up and uh, I mean. Yeah, I don't know if I do cooking every yeah. day, but uh, I I like uh, doing cooking. I'm trying to do a cookbook with my husband. Um, as in write a cookbook. As in write. Excellent. Yeah. Uh, and so I think we're both a little obsessed about mm-hmm. uh, good food. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then, yeah, as you know, I was uh, quite seriously ill uh, yeah. a while ago. Yeah. And it also gave me a new perspective on yeah. of my life uh, because it really learned me to focus on what is important. And I mean, I like uh, I like my colleagues. I like uh, the kind of job I have, basically. But of course, there can be sometimes it's 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 never ending. I mean, you can go on and on and on. It never stops. Yeah. And especially now, where my kids has moved, uh, have moved from home, I mean, you can you can work for twelve hours a day easily because there's nobody. I mean, and my husband is also working a lot, so there's really nobody to tell you that, or I mean, that there's to require nothing, your attention. You. Yes. Yeah. yeah. So so uh, a year ago, um, uh, towards the end of my illness, I had cancer. Um, so and two big surgeries and half a year of chemo treatment, mm. but then uh, I decided to uh, to buy uh, a country house, mm. and I bought this and and somehow it uh, keeps my <laughs> attention uh, in a very good way because mm. when I go there during the weekends, uh, I mean suddenly I'm just immersed in uh, picking up the weeds or cutting uh, branches or uh, making a fire because we need to get rid of this and this or painting the house or I mean stuff like that that uh, mm-hmm. just keep my attention uh, at at other activities. So they're, they're, they're also very tangible. It's also very tangible. <laughs> but uh, so I think it's it's I mean you could say that it's it's stupid that I cannot just I mean do I need to buy a house or country house to do this? Couldn't I just sit at home do some knitting? But I think it's it's too easy to put away your knitting and then read your emails. So there's something important about the fact that you move to somewhere that it's a totally different location and setting. No, because I've already polluted my country house with work sometimes. I mean, it's also actually it's also a place to go where if I really need to have uh, concentration on a specific thing I'm doing, writing or reading it's really nice to go there mm. I can go there on my own and nobody is disturbing mm-hmm. so I mean it's but but there's so many things to do where I'm I mean last weekend I 
I had to uh, move two apple trees. And I'm not very experienced in, in how to do gardening, so I just had, had planted two apple trees a year ago, but in, a, in really crazy spots. But I couldn't see that, and now I can just see, okay, they're really suffering. I better move them before it's too late. So now As winter I'm, comes in. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. It, it took me a while to do yeah. that, and yeah, digging the holes in the ground, yeah. and... And then I can feel my body afterwards. It's aching, but in this good way. Where yeah. I mean, the feeling of of, of work and yeah. actually not only having aching shoulders because you've been sitting too long in front of your computer. Mm -hmm. So I think it's yeah, it's it's really really healthy to have yeah. uh, have these when I don't have my children to take care of. I have, have all my small plants and yeah. and my. Yeah, the mm. apple trees and the wooden house that, that uh, requires some maintenance. Mm. So I think, yeah. So that's at weekends. What about in the evenings? You know, because you, you, yeah. you said that there's when there's nothing calling you to go home. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I'm working too much in the evenings. Yeah. I admit, uh, and maybe. Yeah, maybe it's it's my mainly my husband suffering from that, um, because I mean he's no, I mean if if I don't want to talk, he always has a book to read. Mm. <laughs> but I mean maybe we should be talking more. And um, mm. I mean right now I had a busy time, so I have been working a little too much during the nights. But um, yeah. Uh, so were you more conscious of some of this straight after being sick and it's slipping back to what it was yeah. or has it what's yeah. what's going on yeah there? yeah and uh, i also i mean now i'm going into a new uh, managerial position and i'm trying to i'm trying to make some good decisions on how to become a good manager not making putting stress on uh, your in, on the on my colleagues and and one little thing i've been considering is i have to find some uh, i don't know if it, it it exists but i have a really really bad habit if i want something to happen i can send out an email at 10 o'clock in the evening and i think as i mean i can do that uh, between colleagues on the same level but i should really avoid that mm. uh, I mean because I should not be the one working night and day and then making people who has a family with children and so on feeling bad because mm. they are not working during the nights mm. so I mean I would like to have a, a, an email system where I can sit and write the mail but then put it into some folder that where everything is sent after 8.30 the next yes. day for example yeah, yeah. So somehow respecting the work day respecting more, the work day uh, even if you choose to actually work also a bit later. leaving I mean sometime I don't leave my office until like six o'clock in the evening yeah. I should be leaving like four thirty which is a very Danish yeah. more generally it's yeah, a very yeah. Danish four thirty and then people they could uh, mm. they, they shouldn't feel bad if they mm. were leaving four thirty. Yeah. Uh, so, so what you're talking about is setting the example, you know, yeah. establishing yeah. a, a Even new set of criteria or... <laughs> yeah. Even if I might work a little during the nights, yeah. uh, I shouldn't show that to people. Yeah. So I make them feel bad about not working yeah. during the nights. Because, I mean, I think people shouldn't work for free. I know that academics do, but I mean, somehow at least we could pretend that we don't yeah. uh, expect people yeah. uh, to work for free. But, I mean, just setting, uh, setting a performance measure where everybody has to do this, I mean, 
I, I can see how this can be done in a 37-hour work week. Um, so, I mean, so if you're moving into a new managerial position, is there anything you can do? You think, you know, because you've talked about lots of very practical fallouts, not mm-hmm. just the, of the research skewing and the stress, mm. but the practical fallouts about we don't have the space to employ all the people if we mm. get our million mm. kroner, or you know, um, how do you fit all of those, all of that work within 37 mm. hours? Mm. So. Will you have any possibility to try and change that in your new position? I think, I mean, maybe you have to start from a very, very high level, actually finding arguments for why we as university with very little heavy machinery that's very expensive. Mm. I mean, why we should find another way of benchmarking our mm. research. I mean, we shouldn't look at the national average. We should look at universities uh, in the same, or departments in the same area. I mean, what is their uh, average uh, contribution? And and then we should compare with these instead mm. of having this national benchmarking because, I mean, people, medical studies at Copenhagen University, they have a long uh, tradition of collaborating with Novo Nordisk and uh, Novo, this uh, pharmaceutical, pharmaceutical company, and it's huge amounts of money they give, yeah. but very often they give, then they give uh, uh, 30 million kroner for some very expensive machine. Yeah. Uh, and it's just another level of funding. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I mean, when we get in funding, it's typically to, to pay PhD students. Uh, I mean, of course, there's a little on other expenses as well, but I mean, it's mainly salaries. Yes. Yes. And, and Which is a diff- totally different scale. Totally different scale. So yeah. I think we should, we should benchmark ourselves towards other people in yeah. doing that kind of research. So you're still recognising the importance or the value within some sort of managerial structure of having some benchmarking, but it's no, thinking of more appropriate... No, it's, uh, it's just realising that I will have a really, really hard time uh, to uh, making that go, go away. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's a way of compromising, okay, if we're going to have it, then at least we, we need to... to it, yeah. If we have to have it, yeah. at least it needs to be more realistic. Yeah. I mean, of course, everybody... I mean, we are so much controlling uh, and and judging uh, as peers our work. I mean, there's no other area with this amount of quality control as we have. I mean, all the peer reviewing, all the conferences with only 25% acceptance rates or lower. I mean, it's a quality control you've seen in no other areas. Uh, So, I mean, why do we need to have the other one as well? So, I think... It's, I mean, everybody is doing it the best they can because we are so much, uh, uh, I mean, longing for the honor of being a good researcher. Mm. And I mean, it's what drives us. I mean, we want to be the best. (laughs) But efficiency is even a funny notion because it doesn't allow for the time for ideas to percolate and, you know... uh, to really dwell on ideas before they no. sort of mature into something. No. And is thinking then, thinking becomes un, inefficient, inefficient. Yeah, I, I think we have so, so many, I mean, so many ways of already, I mean, making sure that people are doing good work. Mm. So I don't see how this is uh, any productive mm. yeah. on top of that. It's just actually creating a kind of stress that yeah. prevents people from doing deep thoughts. Yeah. 
Um, I think and impactful research later yeah. on, as you said I mean, earlier. Yeah, because you're not... Now you're constantly thinking, okay, I shouldn't fail because then I don't get my points. Mm -hmm. So, and we know that big ideas takes a lot of failing. So you cannot afford failing. Yeah. <laughs> so you cannot afford uh, working yeah. with these uh, big ideas. Yeah. So, um, so I think at least, I mean, if if we are stuck with these performance measures, at at least we need to get the the foundation of the model yeah. right so or fair in some way yeah. so we're not measuring ourselves towards something that's completely impossible yeah. because i think it's this i mean what is what is get, uh, giving people stress is not ha having given tasks but having always having tasks that you can never fulfill so going home every day have with the feeling that okay i'm not fulfilling uh, the requirements that's a terrible thing or to the be expectations, yeah. having put on you the whole time. Yeah, so I think, I mean, we have to take this feeling yeah. away yeah. Uh, one way or the other. I, I mean, mean, it's so unhealthy having this feeling of never, never being able to uh, satisfy and expectations. And it also means that, you know, as some other people have said in other podcasts, we're not celebrating people's successes because it almost becomes a, oh, thank God I got my 25 points for this, yeah. you know, a relief rather yeah. than, yeah. you know, like, that was great work. Yeah. Yeah. So, so um, time has matched yeah, up. Yeah, yeah. And I think it's really brilliant that you're moving into a position where, you know, there might be some academics' lives here in Denmark that you can influence for the better, and it sounds like you've really also been able to have an impact on the people in your own section in the way mm. that you've responded to those sort of pressures in creating mm. a more collaborative culture. So all the best, and I think we'd all love to hear, um, as time goes on, what sort of strategies have worked and what sort mm. of arguments have worked, because I think they're the sort of arguments that we all need to make, perhaps in... Mm different in the details, but you know, similar in the spirit in many contexts. Mm. Yeah. Mm. So thank you, Lona, for <laughs> your time and for, for sharing all the best with it. Well, thank you for your fantastic initiative. <laughs> you can find the summary notes and the related links for this podcast and all the podcast episodes at www.changingacademiclife.com. You can also subscribe to Changing Academic Life on iTunes and you can follow Change Acad Life on Twitter.